Okay, we've uh, been looking at the Westminster Larger Catechism and a study of the Word as a means of grace. And today uh, we come into one of the divisions. You know, the catechisms tend to have a question which has some information, and then the next question treats part of it, and the one after that treats another part, or uh, somehow it splits up. So here uh, we're picking up the reference in question 155 to the Spirit of God making the reading of the word an effectual means of salvation and uh, asking in question 156, is the word of God to be read by all? And the answer is, although all are not permitted to read the word publicly to the congregation, yet all sorts of people are bound to read it apart by themselves and with their families. To which end the Holy Scriptures are to be translated out of the original into vulgar languages. Of course, vulgar means uh, common languages, the vernacular. So today we're going to look at uh, the use of the Word of God in the reading of it, which, uh, especially in terms of the public reading of Scripture, may not be a really common thing to be addressed, but I, I thought it was worthwhile to spend time just on this question instead of trying to combine it with the next one. So by the way, the next question talks about how we are to read the word of God and includes things like meditation. So today it's more about the injunction uh, to read the word and um, how it functions in the life of the church and of uh, the individual believer and and families. And uh, not as much about, you know, what, what sorts of things we should do when we read the word which, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But for starters, I'd like to everyone to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, this, is, this passage is, in some ways, a review of what we've already said and um, an encouragement to uh, continue in uh, thinking of the word as a means of grace. So I'm going to read uh, 1 Peter 1, 22, and then into chapter 2, verse 3. So Peter says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Just to remind you, Peter is writing to those who are living in... um, Gentile lands and uh, facing the hostility many times of unbelievers. And uh, he's already spoken to them of the salvation they've received and the way they should live as uh, belonging to their heavenly father. And now he turns uh, in this passage, especially to emphasize the word in terms of their uh, lives. You know, notice at the beginning there, he talks about the fact that they were uh, born again through the word of God, which is a topic we talked about uh, in the last study. But even at the end, he reaches all the way through to uh, growing thereby. He has in mind the whole of the Christian life and uh, the use of the word in that uh, whole span of the Christian life. 
So I just want to point out a few things in this passage that I think will help us both, as I said, to review and to to encourage, continue to encourage us in the use of the word as a means of grace. Um, first, you should uh, notice that uh, the the characteristics or the qualities of the word that are given here. Uh, it's been described. It's described here in terms of a seed, but not an corruptible seed, a seed that would perish, but an incorruptible seed. And then he says, the word of God lives and abides forever in verse 23. And uh, quotes from Isaiah 40, uh, which at the end says, the word of the Lord endures forever. That's in sharp contrast to the to the corruptible seed. In particular here, the, the comparison is to all, all of uh, men and all of the purposes of men. They will all pass away. So it's a... It's important to remember the context here because they lived in an empire that claimed to be eternal, right? The eternal Roman Empire, the glorious Roman Empire. And that was not a friendly empire into which to live. And yet here, the apostle uh, Peter calls them to realize that is nonsense. It's a mirage. All the empires of the world are going to pass away. But what continues is the word of the Lord. That is the thing by which they should uh, shape their lives and in terms of which they should think. It's the word of God which lives and abides forever. And that uh, is a very great encouragement to us in our Christian lives. Again, we don't live in the Roman Empire, uh, but there are certain pretensions to grandeur which uh, we can hear all around us. And the emphasis here that it's the word of God that endures forever, that Enduring word of God is enduring because it is the word of God, right? It's not an inherent quality of uh, words written on a page, but it is because God is enduring and faithful that his word endures. So that was uh, one encouragement to them, the, the quality of the word of God, that it endures in contrast to man's glory. Uh, there's something very striking, though, which is uh, given at the end of this, which reinforces this point in sort of a subtle way. He says at the end, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. I think in the the first point, you can see the connection between the preaching of the word and the word which we tried to make last week. It's especially by the preaching of the gospel that they received that word and by by which they had that uh, work of the spirit, um, the uh, being uh, born again, which he describes earlier. But I think you can make a case that the uh, Apostle Peter is making a stronger statement than simply uh, this word that you heard is has the same characteristics as the word uh, that Isaiah refers to. Uh, typically, as we've said before, the writers of the New Testament expect you to read their Old Testament quotations in context, not just like pull a verse out here and say, oh, it sounds good. Uh, so in particular, in Isaiah 40, the you'll remember it begins with, comfort my people and the promise of redemption and the restoration. And so I think uh, what you can make a case here that when Peter says, this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you, he's saying Isaiah 40. That's the gospel that was preached to you. God fulfilled what he said through Isaiah and sending great comfort to his people and sending the Messiah and in uh, fulfilling his promises. And and if you still sense there's more to come because you live under a hostile Roman Empire, well, remember that word was fulfilled and the word surely will be fulfilled to the end. 
So the enduring word of God is uh, specifically here by the preaching of the gospel, the coming uh, of the Messiah promised in Isaiah 40 and the, and the establishment of his kingdom, which will never end. See, now, this is not a study on First Peter, but I'm getting, getting all excited about it. So let me just uh, quickly make a, a couple of more comments. Um, at the beginning of chapter 2, he especially contrasts uh, the way of the Christian life with uh, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and e- uh, evil speaking. And he had done something similar in calling it at the beginning of the passage in 122. Instead, he calls them to desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, the, uh, the New King James Version rep- supplies the phrase of the word. I think, uh, for example, other translations don't have that. It, uh, certainly elsewhere in scripture, the, the milk, this uh, metaphor of the milk is connected with the word of God and uh, the teaching of the word of God. Uh, I think it's helpful to interpret what he's saying here by looking at the last part, which is at verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. This is another Old Testament allusion. Uh, Peter especially likes uh, Psalm 34 in this this epistle. So this this is uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We sing uh, sometimes. And here he says, you know, you've already tasted that the Lord is gracious. You've already experienced the grace of God in your life. And that is a motivation then to make use of all that God has given to you. So I think it certainly would include the the pure milk of the word, would include the use of the word, all of the teaching that they have received. That would enable them to live the life that they are called to. And that uh, is maybe the, the point, maybe not specifically the word, but the whole calling of the Christian life in contrast to malice and deceit and hypocrisy. But I especially want to emphasize uh, this point because today we're going to talk about the reading of the word. And, you know, there's a duty to read the word individually. There's a duty to read the word in the family. There's a duty to read the word in the church. Um, but all of that comes because we've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Okay, I try to emphasize that again and again, that the means of grace are really Christ communicating the benefits of his redemption through the gift of his spirit. It's striking here that the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter takes up Psalm 34. And the Lord is gracious would have been Yahweh in the original. And he applies it to Jesus. The Lord Jesus is gracious, uh, which has implications for our understanding of who Christ is. But it's because we are united to Christ, because we have tasted his goodness, that, that we can make use of the word we can do the things that Peter calls us to do, knowing that it's an abiding word which is graciously given to us. So again, I want to emphasize that, that connection. It's, it's really God's goodness to us that we have the word. And the use of it is, is a duty, is something we're called to do. But it comes because we've tasted that the Lord is good. What, what other response could there be but to seek more of the Lord and his goodness and the word that he gives us? Okay, so that's the introduction, which, okay, so I got caught up in that. So uh, today, as I said, we're going to look at the larger catechism. I hope that's legible uh, from, uh, from all corners. Uh, the larger catechism, which talks about the reading of the word. And I've already read the, the question and answer. So I'm going to divide uh, the points up after the introduction into the public reading of the word, the uh, use of the word privately and in families, and then the word uh, translated uh, into common languages.
which is like the obvious outline from the question. Okay, so it's not very hard to come up with outlines for this. So first, I want to talk about the uh, the public reading of the word. And this, as I said, is probably a topic you don't think about a lot. Uh, maybe it's not one that's uh, much brought up, but the uh, the larger catechism. Uh, is emphasizing here that uh, the word should be read to the entire congregation. I, I don't know uh, how many you know times you visited other congregations, other uh, churches from different backgrounds, but I wonder whether you see an emphasis on the reading of the word in the service in other churches. It's something to, to think about. It is something which is especially uh, prominent in the Reformed uh, tradition, and uh, I want to talk about first the scriptural background, and then I'll get a little bit of the history, although if I spend too much time on it, like, you know, Jeff might be happy because I'll talk about Scotland, but uh, then we won't get to the other part. So I'll, I'll see what I can do here. Take your time. Take my time, okay. <laughs> so why do we read the Bible in our worship services? Now, okay, I hope that seems obvious to you because, like, you're all here and we do it all the time, but I want to think a little bit about the scripture background. And because we talked about uh, some of these passages um, earlier, I'm going to go fairly quickly over this part. So first, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, I think Jeff read from last week. There in the time of Ezra, the priest, there uh, was a gathering. It was in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is based on old, earlier Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 31. But there was a solemn gathering of the people, and Ezra and the priests and Levites uh, read the word. That was, that was the whole point of the gathering. They were to read the word. Now, as we saw last week, they also gave the sense of the word, which would have been, in our terms, a sermon explaining the word. But it was very clearly a solemn occasion in which uh, the first uh, and important part of it before their explanation of the word was simply the reading of the word to the assembled people. Okay, so that's that's uh, one important uh, Old Testament background. And I'm like I said, I'm going to go sort of quickly. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. You can see that that practice was carried over into the New Testament. And... Uh, arguably, you can say it was endorsed uh, by Christ and the apostles because of uh, their use of it. I'm only going to give a, a few references here, but uh, Luke chapter 4, the passage after uh, the temptation of Christ, he comes in uh, to the synagogue. So I'll start reading at Luke 4, verse 16. I'll only read a part of this, but he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now it seems uh, clear that he said uh, more than that, that Luke only records the beginning of this, um, especially considering the reaction that they had to uh, 
to this uh, if you continue in the passage. Um, but you see, his custom was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and uh, there he was given the scroll to read. This was a practice that was carried over, arguably, from Ezra into the synagogues, uh, so that regularly the, on the Sabbath day the scripture was read and, of course, also explained, which is what Jesus then did. Interestingly, this also is from Isaiah. You don't have to go very far from the passage we were just talking about in Isaiah 40 to what Jesus read. Now, here I'm going to go fairly quickly. You can see this pattern again and again in the book of Acts. So I put references up here. So Acts 13, um, for example, um, yeah, okay, just summarizing. Acts 13, for example, the uh, uh, Paul goes into the synagogue, um, the scripture is read, and he gives a sermon. Again, it's maybe not the sermon the synagogue leaders were expecting, uh, but it was a sermon consistent with the, the word of God. Um, Acts 15, you know, when they're talking about the, the uh, admission of Gentiles and whether they needed to be circumcised, they, they wanted to be careful, and the statement is made, and, you know, Moses is still read every week in the synagogue. And that, that uh, is, uh, again, an important part of the, the life of uh, the synagogue. Just one indication in, in connection with the, uh, the, if you want to call it the strictly Christian practice, uh, turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 4. Read uh, just uh, Colossians 4.16. This is uh, obviously at the end of the epistle. Uh, Paul writes to the Colossians, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, it seems very unlikely that this was a scroll which you know they would have sent home with the families to read or you know uploaded it to their iPads or whatever, right? I mean, that the reading would have been in the assembled congregation. And the implication seems to be that this is the, because this is the word of God, this is, uh, this is to be read to you, and, and you should take advantage of the, the word of God in the epistle uh, from Laodicea. And if this starts to sound familiar, I think uh, in the series on the canon that we watched uh, with Michael Kruger, he referred to passages like this in terms of the reception of, uh, of the New Testament scriptures as canon, and one evidence of that is that they were they were read just as they would have read the uh, in the synagogue. They would have read the from the what we call the Old Testament. First uh, Thessalonians 5:27 is a, a similar uh, passage. So, sorry, I, I I think because you're already convinced we ought to read the scriptures in in uh, worship, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the scriptural warrant for it. Let me talk just a little bit about the history. And again, this is, I think, familiar with uh, familiar from uh, the the points that uh, Michael Kruger made. Uh, for example, in the time of uh, Justin Martyr, which was around 150 A.D., uh, there are readings from the Old Testament and readings uh, from the New Testament also, picking up the synagogue practice but now incorporating the, the New Testament canon. Uh, let me read uh, just a little bit about the uh, document called the Apostolic Constitutions. So uh, this is in the 4th century. It represents the worship customs of Antioch. 
So this is from a book by Hughes Oliphant Old, an expert on worship, worship recording, uh, reformed according to scripture. So he says this, uh, it shows us that there are at each service four scripture lessons, a reading from the law followed by a reading from the prophets, just as there had been in the synagogue, and then a reading from the epistles and a reading from the gospels as a sort of New Testament counterpart to the double lesson from the Old Testament. This usage may well go back much further into history. Between the lessons, psalms or parts of psalms might be sung. Following the lessons, there was a sermon. Okay, so that's, that's a description from the, the uh, fourth century uh, apostolic constitutions, this document, which at least described uh, in, one, in one setting uh, the way the service was structured around the word of God, and especially uh, extensive reading of the word of God. So there's a lot more that you could say that declined over history. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, as I already said, was really an, a return to or recovery of the use of the word of God in worship. And we'll come back to that a little bit when we talk about the need to have it in the common languages. Um, let me just point out in terms of our own uh, history, though. So the Westminster Assembly, so larger catechism folks, okay, they also approved a directory for public worship. In the directory for public worship that they approved, uh, they suggested that there, that ordinarily in worship, one chapter of each of the testaments be read. Now, this is not a liturgy, so they're not saying this is what you have to do or you have to read them in this order, but they suggested that ordinarily one of the chapters of each testament be, be read. They actually said, okay, well, you know, the length of it and so on can be left to the wisdom of the minister. So they want to leave flexibility here. Um, but I wonder, uh, as you hear that and as you think about the context uh, both uh, of our own day and of the Westminster Assembly, what do you think is the reason why uh, that much scripture was to be read? Yes, I'm stopping talking and asking you a question. So here I'm, I'm sort of asking about the benefits of reading the word, but also uh, its importance in terms of uh, God's worship. Yes, Jeff. I don't, I don't know the answer for sure, but I have been wondering about the question of literacy. Right. And to what degree people were literate. Right. And did the Protestant Reformation that was emphasis on everyone learning to read it, so, somehow, I mean, yeah. I mean, did that uh, Absolutely. undercut it, or at least, you know, gave us reason to reduce the amount of, because these public readings are, Right, and in fact, they encouraged uh, as a possibility just to read through chapter by chapter through the Old Testament and chapter by chapter through the New Testament. Yeah. Not all of one. Not all. No, <laughs> ordinarily one chapter at a time, but you know some of those chapters are long, as we saw. So that's that is definitely uh, an important point. Just a second, uh, Mark. And, and I think we should ask whether in our own day we're sort of beyond that or whether maybe we're moving into times where that might re return to its importance. But biblical literacy and plain, like being able to read, that was a problem. Uh, but biblical literacy then could be encouraged by the reading of the word until the people were more familiar with it. Mark. Right. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, there's also in the Reformation a very conscious rejection of image-based information communication and uh, and give the people the word. Um, yeah, and I, I think, uh, yeah, there is a danger of, uh, of just reading a snippet of the word and then going off on your own uh, in the sermon. Yes, Dave. Yeah, and that I want to. We've made sort of this connection before. That's that's a really good point, and we shouldn't really play off one against the other. I mean, the public reading of the word is is a means to help you in your private reading of the word. And on the other hand, if like you're saying, you know, if, if you never read the word on your own, then okay, you'll benefit from the public reading of the word, but you'll benefit even more if you've been reading it on your own. So that's a that's a very important connection to make. People don't read, you know. Yeah, I kind of decided not to go into all that, but that yes, that's that's true. Uh, Dan. As an anecdote, there was a conversation I had this week about with a, an elected official, state state official in Oklahoma, and there's a well, I don't know what the percentages are, but let's just say not a hundred percent of the state legislators read the bill. Yeah, disturbing. Um, let me make w- one other comment w- connected with that. I think the the practical aspect is is uh, very important and is a great motivator. If you sort of step back and ask, why should we read the Word of God in worship? Well, it's because uh, God is speaking to us through His Word in worship. And as it were, the, the one who reads the Word is like the ambassador who comes in and says, "Okay." I, I didn't write this. This isn't my idea. I'm speaking to you from God. This is what God has to say to you. The sermon is, of course, there to explain uh, the text uh, for the sermon, but there is a real importance in recognizing God is the one who speaks to us. God is the one who instructs us. We're going to humbly and sit under his word as it's read to us and realize that uh, we've tasted that the Lord is good. Let's, Let's taste more of him in the word that he's given. So I think in, in terms of the, you know, the structure of the worship, worship, worship as a dialogue, um, this is God speaking to us, and uh, it's important to, <clears throat> to hear him speak, even as the word is also explained later. Okay, see, I told you I'd get caught up on this. I haven't done the history, the other history part yet. Let me just try as quickly as possible to make a brief explanation about although all are not to be permitted to read the word publicly, okay? So, huh? I mean, 
you know, can't, can't we have, you know, cute little Billy up here reading the word or something? Um, so there's a, actually a very long history going back to the early, uh, you know, post-apostolic church of having readers in the service, people who would, who would read the word. It's not exactly clear uh, what their level of training was, you know, whether they were ministers or preparing to be ministers, and I'm sure that changed over time. But in particular, uh, the history in Scotland, so here you go, Jeff, is, is kind of interesting. So if you look at the first book of discipline, this is 1560 in Scotland. So they're really just getting started, in a sense, in reforming the church. Um, they specified the need for readers, and this was because there weren't enough ministers to go around. I mean, it wasn't just a problem of literacy, but there weren't actually people who were trained to be ministers. They were lots of sort of leftover Roman Catholic priests, but they didn't want most of those to be ministers. So in, in that shortage, they had people who were readers. Their job was to read the scriptures. They also had written prayers that they were to read. And um, that, that was the practice in Scotland. Um, they were encouraged, the readers were to encourage to grow so that they could actually be ordained as ministers. But that was sort of what they could do at the time. And then if you know church history, what happens is that, well, this just becomes a thing on its own, right? So we have these readers, so later on they had ministers, but the readers would take the part of the service where they read and the minister would do the preaching. Okay, So that's why when the Westminster Assembly debated this point, the Scot Scottish commissioners were a little bit uncomfortable. This question about whether they should say this, and it's actually specified in the Directory for Public Worship also, that it should be the ministers or those who intend the ministry who, who should read the word. So, but they submitted to the uh, decision of the assembly, and the church uh, then began the practice of, of having the, the word read uh, by the minister and not, not by sort of lay readers. Um, it's a lot more complicated than what I just said, but I think it's an interesting example of how the, the church, even after it had this tradition, was willing to listen to the wisdom of uh, other ministers and, uh, and the study of the word in the Westminster Assembly and accept that conclusion. I, I think probably one, one hesitation was that the reading service was an hour long and the sermon was an hour long. So if you're going to do both of them, you're going to get pretty tired. Uh, so that, that was, there was a practical consideration. But I think it's also important to realize that uh, for them to realize, for us to realize, this is not something which is somehow below the minister. Like, I'm here to preach. I'm not here to read to you. Because of this point that I already made, and that is, you know, reading the word is acting as an ambassador of God. And just as in Nehemiah, it was the priests and the Levites who were reading the word, connected with the preaching of the word. I think it makes sense for that to occur in our own day. So, our, for example, our, our directory for worship uh, which was approved like 11 years ago, and um, it's consistent with what was there before, uh, says the reading of the word should be done by an elder. The service is, uh, is led by an elder, which is uh, sort of a, a similar sort of position. I'm not going to give anyone a chance to comment on that because I'm going to run out of time. So let's move to the third point in, uh, in my outline, which is uh, that the word of God should be read uh, privately, and in families. Now, this is, as we've already said, absolutely vital for one's own individual Christian life in the reading of the word, vital for the Christian life of the family. And as I've already made the point, 
it's vital for the church that this happen in the individuals and in the families, right? That's, that's the way the church is strengthened by individuals and families uh, reading the word of God. Uh, before I make that point, though, let me or develop that a little further. Let me, uh, let me emphasize that the word of God is not only useful for believers, but for unbelievers. And I had this point last week in my notes. It was written there, and I completely skipped over it. Um, the word of God is central for evangelism. And by that, I don't just mean, which is important, when you're speaking to an unbeliever, you're using the word of God, but encourage unbelievers to whom you speak to read the word of God. Many of them haven't read it. And this is what uh, we read last time in the larger catechism answer. The spirit uses the reading of the word to enlighten people. So that's an important part, uh, even though you know, we may immediately go to what Christians should do with the word individually and in their families. Um, this is what Peter has already said in 1 Peter 1. And you, they were born again in the context of the word of God. So just... Uh, for a, one scripture reading in connection with this, after all we're studying scripture readings, uh, turn with me to John 6, sorry, John 5, John 5, verses 37 through 40, which is up there. Here, this is in, uh, in the middle of... Uh, Jesus back and forth with the religious leaders, uh, especially about what witnesses support his uh, own uh, claims about himself. So, pardon me, I'm going to pick up in the middle of it. uh, 5, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. Now here, some translations say, you search the scriptures, that is in the indicative, that's the word for that, Uh, but some have it in the imperative, search the scriptures. Um, No doubt, as the religious leaders were students of the scriptures, but they failed in their study of the scriptures, Jesus is saying. Because the scriptures testify of him. If they had rightly understood the scriptures, they would have recognized him. Like if they had read Isaiah 40, the way Peter encouraged us to. They would have, they would have recognized the Messiah who comes. So whether you, you know, translate it in the, you know, this is what you do, you search the scriptures, certainly the imperative is implied. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to know the, who he is, you need to search the scriptures. Which means reading is not just reading, it's diligent reading. And that's more of a topic for next week uh, because the larger catechism will ask us how the word of God is to be read. They left few stones unturned. But just for today, the encouragement for each individual, for us to search the scriptures. Um, Let me then move from individual just as speaking a little bit about the use of the word of God in families. And uh, these are, I think, things that we've talked about before. I put up references to Deuteronomy 6, right? You know, pass these things on to your children, talk of them. And it's in the context specifically of the word which had been given and in, in, uh, was to be given later in Deuteronomy. Or Psalm 78, 1 through 8, you know, we talk about, uh, we sing that often in reference to how 
we should instruct our children, tell them they shouldn't be like their fathers were, and also those, you know. This shows this is a divinely inspired book. Who would write a, a song to sing which tells you don't be like, you know, your parents? Uh, this is like preceding generations more, but. Psalm 78 encourages us, just as Deuteronomy does, and you can find many other references like this, to to pass on the faith to our children, but especially in terms of the use of the word of God. So again, I want to give a a couple of minutes here because uh, I'd like to hear what practically you've found is valuable in terms of reading the word of God. Like, you know, do you read a chapter from the Old Testament and the New Testament and the King James Version to two-year-olds? Or <laughs> what is it that you found useful uh, in your practice in terms of the use of the Word of God and family worship, however you want to describe it? And no, I don't think necessarily reading two chapters from the King James Version is the right idea. Uh, any, any thoughts here? Dave? Repetition. Repetition. Yeah, and that's yeah. Because of time, I didn't read from Deuteronomy, but that's that's what it's saying. You know, wherever you are, you know, whatever you're doing, talk about it. You have to repeat again and again. That's good. It's really easy to feel you're not getting through one time, and that's maybe because you're not one time. But repetition is valuable. Good. Any other thoughts? Yeah, this may come up uh, next week when we look a little bit more at the uh, how the word of God is to be read. But let me add uh, one other comment because uh, we're covenanters. We can't, we can't pass up this point. The uh, catechism says all sorts of people are bound to read the word. And it's interesting, the scripture reference they give there is in uh, Deuteronomy 17 where the king was commanded First to write out a copy of the word and then to read it daily. Daily reading of the word. That was expected of the king. Now, um, you know, it's tempting to be really cynical like that would never happen, but that's one thing we can pray for. We can pray for the word of God not to be just the thing, you know, that we do in our private lives, but that it would be part of the reading of those who have responsibility in whatever the sphere of our society is. So it could be in you know, government, civil government, it could be in business, uh, whatever. It's all sorts of people who are to read the word. It's uh, our responsibility to read it and to see how it applies where we are. Okay, now we did start a little bit late, so I'm counting myself as having five more minutes. Um, what is the last part of this? It is that to which end the Holy Scriptures are to be translated out of the original into vulgar, into the common languages. So I already mentioned, and you're probably aware, that this is a very significant point in the Protestant Reformation. So the Vulgate, ironically, the Latin translation of the Bible, which wasn't in the vulgar language of uh, the uneducated uh, people uh, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, was considered, so it was considered the authentic text You needed permission to read or even have a Bible in the vernacular, in the common language, under the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, And it was a mortal sin even to have a copy of the Bible in the vernacular um, at the the time of, say, the Council of Trent and on beyond that. 
There's been some change in the Roman Catholic Church in recent years. But this is a, a significant part of the Reformation that uh, it's fine to read the word of God in the service, but if it's in Latin, no one's going to understand it. And the word is there to be understood. That's why sermons are based on the word. And so not only here in the larger catechism, but actually in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, where they're talking about scripture and the whole doctrine of scripture, they make exactly the same point. That scripture should be translated into the common languages, should be translated accurately, um, and uh, so that the people can understand and use the word. Now, I'm not sure that we need a lot of biblical argument for this point. Um, the scripture text, interestingly, in the larger catechism to support this, the scripture proof is 1 Corinthians 14. Because Paul says, if you go into church and you want to exercise your gift of speaking in another language and no one can understand what you're saying, what good does that do? It's better to prophesy, that is to speak the word of God in a language that people can understand. I think that's an excellent uh, example of why we need the Bible in the common language. So, uh, again, I'm not sure that this is a controversial point. I think we should appreciate the history that we have on the emphasis of the Bible, translation of the Bible. And we should support people like Bridget who are trying to do that, who are trying to get the Bible uh, available to people in their, uh, in their native languages so that they can read and understand it. Okay, so I went sort of quickly over the last part there. Any, any comments or questions about that? Yeah, right. Yeah, I actually, so I I skipped over other uh, supports for it, but that's a good good example. Another another fact is that when the New Testament was written in Greek, it wasn't written in classical Greek. It was written in common Greek, the Greek that the common person who could read would be able to read. And uh, that's, again, an indication that we're not here for like the most eloquent and uh, most impressive uh, thing that you might have. We want something that people can read. Other comments? Yes, Dave. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's good. And the, yeah, the catechism question before this says the spirit of God uses the reading of the word to do all these things. And that's we need to be diligent in reading it, but we need to completely trust that God will do what he says he will do, even if it seems like it's slow. Good. Thank you for that. Dan. Struck by yet another call to balance because what seems to be happening here is a 
ditches. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Another yeah. Exam, I mean, that's like all I can see in my life now is ditches. Balance. So on the one hand, you have um, the, the word is not to be in the, the people shouldn't even have it in their own language. This will be controlled by some sort of establishment. Right? You talk about the Roman Catholic Church or something. They, they can't read it. We will say what it, we, we will communicate what it means, what it says. We will control everything, which is very similar to the totalitarian government or other totalitarian, totalitarian structures. Yeah. And then in the other ditch, you might say, well, let's let's have it out there with everybody with no leadership. Like, there's, everybody just kind of right. figure, it's just kind of uh, anarchy or some sort of, everybody read it, everybody figure out their own thing. It's just the Wild West. It's the circus or something. Versus something in the middle that says, no, everybody has to be read. There's leadership, etc., to help as we wrestle through what does it mean. You search the scriptures, but you don't even... You don't even see that they testify about me, you know, right. Satan quoting them with God. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Just this back. Excellent point. Yeah, and that's. I mean, I think you could say that's why the larger catechism says the Spirit makes the reading, but especially the preaching. It's not trying to say you do one or the other, but but God has given uh, men as ministers to help us understand it. But that doesn't mean that they're the only ones with Bibles or yeah. the only ones who can read it. Yeah. Very good. Henry. In terms of, you know, Bible study, you know, uh, repetition was mentioned, but also, I think one thing is varying your pattern of reading sometimes. You know, my main pattern just doesn't speak. I start at the beginning and I just go through the thing. And that's fine for a little time, but every now and then I try to vary that pattern. You know, maybe I'll start in the New Testament because mm-hmm. I think it's like yeah. the Testament, or maybe I'll read it. You know, very chapter sections of the Bible. Yeah. Good. That's good. Yeah. And uh, Lord will we'll talk about this more not next week because uh, Stephen Atkinson will be here, Lord willing. But the week after that, we'll come back to how the word is to be read, and there maybe some of those other practical things can come up then. But I really have run over, so I'm going to stop. Let's close in prayer.